Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Mark Wood. This season on SageCast, we're talking with a variety of Pomona College faculty members about how they came to study what they study, teach what they teach, and love the field they love. Today, we're talking with Professor of English Kevin Zetmar, whose CV seems to be divided into two main areas. On the classical side, British and Irish modernism, particularly the works of James Joyce. And on the contemporary side, the world of pop music, particularly rock and roll. So let's start there. Kevin, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, I was looking at a couple of your bios on a couple of websites, um, one for a conference on pop music and one for a seminar on James Joyce. And each one focused on what seemed to be relevant for that site. But if it weren't for the photo and the name, I never would have guessed it was the same person. <laughs> Is it the same person? Uh, well, it's all me. It's the same person. <laughs> it's, not, it's not the same it's not the same body of work. It's not the same part of my brain, probably. Maybe there's some overlap, but they feel like two pretty distinct um, streams, two distinct kind of projects to me. I get asked about it. You know, um, I think that the the literary studies side finds the pop music side very cute or something, and so they want to know, like, well, what's the connection between James Joyce and rock and roll? It's like, there, there isn't any. I mean, uh, you could come up with something. I mean, he died in, he died in 1941. There, there was no rock and roll. There's no overlap. Um, they just both interest me, and they both present sort of interesting intellectual puzzles to, to wrestle with. Yeah. Are the two fields related in any way? <laughs> well, I think um, it was pointed out to me recently that the, the two figures... Um, so one musical figure and one literary figure, but the two figures that I've really written about are um, Joyce and Dylan, and they they have a similar kind of. Not to say that that what I, I don't mean to compare the two in terms of stature or anything like that, but there's a kind of complexity, a sort of density to the work of both of them um, that's that's not dissimilar. Uh, I, th I think that if you like really. If you like material that resists you, material that uh, really requires a big investment of time, um, you might end up with those two. And to study both, do you use the same analytical set or how do you approach both? I, I guess, again, it would be overlapping. Um, I come to puppy music studies from literary studies, so I probably overemphasize lyrical material to a certain extent. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not a musician. I don't have a, I've, I've audited Jody's uh, uh, music theory class, but I'm not a music theorist or musicologist. Mm -hmm. I don't really have those tools or that vocabulary. So um, I think I, I usually start, I either start with, with lyrics or I start with the way that lyrics and music are interacting. I would never I think write more than a paragraph about just the sound of a song because I, I just wouldn't be able to go very far with that. Right. And yet you, you said that uh, you think um, that in analyzing a song, looking at the lyrics is probably not enough. That it's that the importance of the lyrics is kind of overstated. Yeah, and I think it's overstated by p people like me and my ilk, um, those of us who've sort of emigrated from literary studies. Um, right, I mean, it's the whole argument. But when Dylan won the Nobel Prize, uh, there was a lot of predictable sort of uproar about that. 
And it's not, as is often reported, it's not the Nobel Prize for poetry, it's the Nobel Prize for literature, and literature is a certain quality of writing. Um, and I think that sometimes Dylan gets treated as a poet, and that if you just, I mean, Dylan was the first uh, popular musician to be in the Norton Anthology of Poetry. Boots of Spanish Leather was printed as a poem. Um, if you just read it as a poem, it's really not, I don't think it holds its own. Uh, I, I think that part of the way that it works has to do with rhythmic qualities and has to do with a kind of dynamic between the music and the words. And it has to do with phrasing things that really aren't captured on the page. So it's it, good popular song and poetry employ a lot of the same um, raw materials, but yeah, it's it's just oversimple only to pay attention to the to the words. I mean, think about like a Rolling Stone, how Dylan says, how does it feel? And feel is like six syllables long. <laughs> if you're just looking at it, you you wouldn't you wouldn't get that. So, mm -hmm. so let's kind of delve into the music a little bit. Um, is it possible to trace your love of music back to any and of rock in particular back to any point in time in your childhood? Uh, my childhood was, well, I don't know if it was unusual. I, I suppose lots of kids are oldest kids. I was, I was the oldest child, so I didn't have an older brother or sister who knew what you should be listening to, who told me. I remember in sixth grade, which for me was 1969, this kid named Hugh coming to school and he was just like despondent. And it's like, Hugh, what's up? And it's like the Beatles broke up. And it's like, <laughs> that just meant nothing to me. I had no frame of reference. I'm sure I had heard a Beatles song or two on the radio or mm. in the supermarket or something, but it's just that didn't happen in my house. I was one of those people in mourning. Yeah, <laughs> right. As, and I wish, I wish I could say I was. I, I wasn't. You know, my, my mother worked at Capitol Records in the late 1950s, but she worked with people like Frank Sinatra and Nat King Cole. And that music was in our house um, and kind of show tunes, um, musicals, but pop the music, just, just not at all. Um, so, uh, so when did I, I mean, I think that, that I really became interested in music as a part of this ritual that adolescent males go through in this country or did in the 1970s when I was in junior high, like the way that you tried to figure out who you were and who your friends were was by sort of identifying around bands. So weirdly, I think the first bands that I ever really cared about were, um, progressive rock bands like like Emerson, Lake and Palmer and Genesis and Yes and all the stuff that everybody makes fun of now. Um, <laughs> but I thought, I think it was important that it seemed like it was very smart. Like this was not simple music. You know, this wasn't She Loves You, Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. This was like based on symphony <laughs> structure. So it was, it was somehow higher than the rest of the low stuff. You're like respectable for a, for a, a, a would-be pretentious intellectual kid to listen to. Um, but I did love it. I do still love it. I still pull it out sometimes, although it's <laughs> some of it's a little cringeworthy now. <laughs> so we started talking about when you kind of uh, found music and, and how you grew up with it. So is it, has it always been rock or how do you define rock and, and how did mm. you start studying that? Yeah, rock's a terrible. Um, <laughs> I mean, the, the class that I teach... <clears throat> Uh, the, the advanced writing class is called rock and roll writing. And I really think that next time I teach, I'm going to have to change it to something like um, rock and pop writing or something like that. Um, I think that sometimes rock seems like this umbrella term. And sometimes it seems like it's talking about a subgenre. It's like classic rock or it's guitar driven or it's something like that. And I really just mean like 
post-World War II American and British popular music. Not as a catchy almost. title for it. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's not, it, it's not catchy. Um, yeah, so, so it's not, it's, I, I don't mean rock as opposed to hip-hop or as opposed to pop or as opposed to um, rockabilly or something. That's, mm-hmm. that, that's not what I'm trying to do in using that. It's, I, want it to be, I want it to be capacious. Anthony De Curtis, um, in a book he edited years ago, he's the first person that I noticed. You, you know, there are all these conventions about writing rock and roll, rock and roll, rock and roll, whatever. And he, <laughs> and he used an ampersand. Mm-hmm. And to me, somehow, that sort of like, that feels right. That seems <laughs> like does, inclusive yeah. somehow, right? It's like it's putting its arms around a lot of stuff. You can pronounce so, it however you want to. Well, it's that's just the thing, though. If you write it that way, it still yeah. sounds like all the other ones. You can't really hear the difference. So it doesn't do that work orally. Mm-hmm. Um, you wrote a book called "Is Rock Dead?" Um, I, w- I won't ask you if if it is. Because, <laughs> um, it's a real cliffhanger. I think it's yes. no, no in the first paragraph. So. But why? Why do you think there's so many people sort of eager to write its obituary? It's. I mean, I shouldn't. Um, I shouldn't pretend to understand the inner lives of music critics, but but I I was just noticing this pattern of critics who were about my age, uh, and they're all men. Um, and it seemed to me like a really un self-conscious kind of nostalgia for the music that they grew up with, which I totally understand. Um, I mean, my rock is rock. Yours isn't. Yeah, right. Exactly. It was good when I was in high school or when I was in college, you know, when I was in my dorm room listening to Dylan, when, uh, blonde on blonde came out. Now that was rock and roll kids these days, you know, get off my lawn. You just like fill it out. It seemed really embarrassingly obvious what was happening, which was that people were creating a canon really about around their own sort of adolescence and young adulthood. So, um, and, and, uh, and it turns out that, you know, people date the, the birth of rock various places, but the first record, uh, called the death of rock and roll came out in 1956. Like people have been saying rock is dead basically since it was born. So when you notice that, structurally, that's interesting. Like, why are we so insistent on saying always that it's dead? In some cases, it's triumphalist, like hip-hop. Or some people within hip-hop will say rock is dead because you want to be its successor, right? So you need to sort of clear the gland or slay the father or something so you you can... Um, but sometimes it's like, yeah, and so I, uh, I draw the line here, and I'm a, I'm a master of the terrain that I've declared as rock and roll, right? And anything that comes along, I don't have to pay attention to anymore. And I think it's totally fine as a critic, and I'm noticing that this is starting to happen more to me. I think it's completely <laughs> fair to say, you know, I really, for me, the sweet spot is like um, the first five years of British punk or something. Like, I, I like lots of stuff that's, but to say, that's different from saying no good music was done after the Sex Pistols broke up, <laughs> which just seems stupid. So, And how did that book come about? Uh, I, I read, a, I remember where I was. I was sitting up in bed at night reading The New Yorker. Nick Hornby, I think for maybe four or five or six installments, but for a while he was writing a pop column in The New Yorker. And he wrote a review of um, Kid A, the Radiohead album Kid A, which was just so cranky. Uh, I mean, he really did say things like, you know, I'm an adult and I have a job and I don't have time for this. 
which I thought meant then you shouldn't listen to it. But, right. you know, that right. doesn't mean that it's not valid mm -hmm. or really challenging or interesting. Or, mm -hmm. So it did seem like he and I, I, I don't remember. He has a book called um, Songbook. That's like his little anthology. He's very he he pushes the term pop, not just as an alternative to rock and pop or something, but he really um, tends to valorize uh, AM radio kinds of um, big popular hits, mm. which is great. Mm -hmm. um, but I think as a response to that, anything that seemed more challenging or seemed, um, yeah, kind of more demanding that he just was unwilling to make any time for it. And I got sort of angry. It seemed like a very dishonest review, but it also was starting to activate these echoes like, wait, but I've, I've heard other people saying this, you know, <laughs> right, that, right. that rock is dead. Mm -hmm. and, and, and again, they're about my age, which is interesting. And I hope I don't do that. And so it started there and I published a short thing. And um, I used to write a kind of an occasional column for the, uh, the Chronicle of Higher Education about pop culture and pop music and, and published it there and an editor uh, you know, a, a trade book editor saw it and said, mm -hmm. are you working on a book? And it seemed like I should say yes. Yeah. So I did. And we built one hmm. out of that. Interesting. So, yeah. However you define rock, um, you can turn on a radio today and you don't have to turn the dial very far to find yeah. a song that was made 50, 60 years ago. Yeah. Why do you think rock has been so enduring? Wow. That's a great question. I'm not sure I have any idea. I mean, this this doesn't explain it. This is just saying the same thing that I'm I'm struck often in in teaching that um, while maybe the the stuff that my students are listening to um, it is new, they also know their parents' records. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I sometimes will ask students, you know, for a first day kind of exercise, like if you could only keep 10 albums or CDs or however we define that unit anymore, or like 10 CDs on a desert island, like what are those? Okay, we're going to ask you that later. Okay, okay I'll have to come up with some. <laughs> but I mean, they'll often say like, um, who's next? It's like, the who? Really? Night was at 73 or something? Like, wow, that's before we were born. And I never would have, what would be the corresponding thing? I never would have said like a Doris Day album or, mm -hmm. um, or you know, in the wee small hours yeah. and stuff that I Frank listen to Sinatra. now. Right. But, but I didn't, I did not raid my parents' record collection. That was not interesting to me. Right. Yeah. You, um, we mentioned Dylan earlier um mm. how did you come about uh, is that one is he one of your favorites how did how, tell us how did you come about to uh, I, study him yeah there's so many um i don't know just coincidence or, or great things um that have i i've had such a blessed run i feel like so i so i wrote that book called um is rock dead mm -hmm. and Ray Ryan, who's the American literature editor at um, Cambridge University Press, had in mind uh, that there's a big series of books called the Cambridge Companions, and they do literary companions and political science and history and sort of all over the map. But he had the notion that it was time to start doing some books on popular music, and he wanted to start with a book on Dylan. So he wrote me an email and he said, you know, I wrote your book. I really liked it. I wonder if you would want to talk about editing mm -hmm. this thing. And and I wrote, I, I probably have the email somewhere, but I wrote back and said, oh, that's really flattering, but I don't, I don't know anything about Bob, Bob Dylan. And he said, I don't care. <laughs> I don't. Or I think I, I think I said, that's really nice, but I'm not a Dylan person. Mm -hmm. He said, I don't want a Dylan person. You know, I want somebody who writes well and who will kind of come at this fresh. So, and then I, I thought about 
the people that I would get to work with maybe, right. mm -hmm. um, great people. <laughs> so, uh, my one and only encounter with Carrie Brownstein. So, um, so I just thought, well, it sounds like an interesting challenge as long as I don't have to pretend to be one of those guys mm -hmm. who knows all of the outtakes from infidels or something, then I, I can figure out what that book should cover sure. and what the structure looks like. And mm -hmm. I think I know interesting people to ask to write it. So it's really, I don't have to, I wrote an introduction, but I just didn't have to know who would write well. I don't have to write well about him. And was he one of your favorites? No. Uh, <laughs> and I still don't. I mean, I think, I don't know if the distinction makes any sense. I, I admire him enormously. Mm -hmm. I, so in my high school, um, high school boys either listened to Bob Dylan or Neil Young. And my crowd listened to Neil Young. I don't know why. Mm -hmm. It wasn't my choice. I just did what I was told, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and so I didn't listen to Dylan that much, uh, except that w you can hardly not. I mean, he's everywhere. Right. So, But I think just as sort of that sort of like secondhand smoke. Like I, I got <laughs> Dylan like everybody did, but never really studied or thought about him. Or I don't think I would have ever like put a Dylan album on and listened to it mm -hmm. until I started kind of preparing to do the book. Mm. But but the flip side of that is I had a friend who's I have a friend um I have a lot of friends who are who are Dylan aficionados, um, some of whom I got to know in the in the course of writing that book. But uh one friend wrote to me when he heard that I was doing it and he was just obviously jealous. And he's and, and it was kind of sneering. He said, Can you imagine doing a Cambridge companion to Neil Young? And I thought about it for a second. And it's like, no, no, that wouldn't be right. Like, I don't think he deserves that. He's great. I love him. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll fight with you over him. But but in terms of cultural resonance and impact and influence and mm -hmm. just pure intelligence, um, like, no, I, I get that Dylan's better. Right. But if I were going home and put one on, it would be on the beach. It wouldn't be blood That's on the tracks. Dylan. Yeah. Hmm. So. You mentioned that, you know, Dylan, when Dylan won his Nobel, there was, there were a lot of dissenting opinions, to say the least, in, especially in academia. Um, why do you think he won it? What was, what was uh, going on there? Uh, who can plumb the mind of the Nobel Committee? I don't know. I mean, it, it, it certainly makes sense to me. I think as long as you don't pretend that it's poetry or something, I think if you think about it as, it's almost easier to think about the Nobel Prize for writing, because um, even literature has connotations that aren't necessarily helpful. You want to think about an American, well, it doesn't have to be an American, obviously, but you want to think about a contemporary writer who's had huge impact, who has these these strange kind of antenna that just go out into the culture and pull things in and pull them together. Um, I, I don't think, I don't think there's a living, right. I mean, I, I, I was interviewed, um, the, the Cambridge companion is in the bibliography that the Nobel committee put together so that when the press release went out, I started getting all these emails and phone calls from people wanting who were doing like real quick turnaround news stories. And I was sitting talking to somebody, I think maybe, um, I don't remember, one of the local um, public radio stations, and I was sitting in my office. And on my, in my office, I have a poem written by Paul Muldoon that was written on the occasion of, Nobel, of uh, Seamus Heaney getting the Nobel Prize in literature. And I was sitting on my desk looking at it and thought, there's no way that Seamus Heaney has had anything like the kind of reach or influence of Bob Dylan. Even Seamus Heaney would have said that. So, you know, by that criterion, at least, it's, it's warranted. 
You said Dylan is not one of your favorites. Who are some of your favorites? <laughs> Neil Young. <laughs> Besides, it's Neil funny. Young. <laughs> it's funny how much though. I I really think um, I, I wrote a paper. Or I've actually done a. I think about it. I've done two papers. I think two conference papers about Wayne's World. The um, the Mike Myers movie, Wayne's World, or Penelope Spheris movie, Wayne's World. But part of what that movie really gets right is how um, how kind of sacred uh, pop music can be for young men of a certain age. It's very hard. It, it's hard for women in other and, and more extreme ways, I think. But for young men to try to bond without being labeled as being queer or something, to, to have same-sex friendships in junior high and high school. It's just this really complicated kind of gross mm -hmm. um, terrain to navigate. Mm -hmm. But one thing you're allowed to do uh, is to listen to music really intently and uh, with great affect and mm -hmm. great emotion, mm -hmm. right? That you can, you can sort of cathect these, to use a fancy term, you can cathect those emotions through the music and that's socially acceptable. Right. And the, there's, there's a great moment where they're listening to Bohemian Rhapsody in, in that pace or whatever that car is, right? And as soon as the music goes down, it's like game face, right? We didn't just do that. They're, they're, Wayne and Garth are sitting in the front seat, and they look over at each other, and it's like a post-coital look. It's really just so intimate, and it's like, that never happened. We're mm -hmm. never going to talk mm -hmm. about this. Mm -hmm. Which is just to say, I think that the music for at least a young man of my generation, the music that comes to your life then is sort of sacrosanct, like it's just untouchable, and nothing else will quite have that place. Having said that, and, and, and still loving um, you know, all of that progressive rock. I mean, in part, Radiohead really taps into that. I feel like Radiohead sort of grabbed the progressive rock um, project and mm -hmm. finished it. I mean, right. realized what, what was maybe possible there. Mm -hmm. In part, I think, because it, it gets back to that affect thing. I mean, uh, so, some of Radiohead's most powerful music for me combines a real sort of virtuosity, both in the writing and in the, the production and in the instrumentation. But there's this fragility of Tom York's voice and, and production that makes it feel still human, even while it's, it's so august. Um, so I would say, you know, sort of... Um, Post becoming an adult and a college professor, no band has meant as much to me as as, as Radiohead has. Mm. But there are lots. I mean, all of punk. I mean, punk was happening when I was in college, mm -hmm. and and so all of the the British punk bands more than the American. For I'm sort of an Anglophile, and um, <laughs> those bands and um, David Bowie and Brian Eno and Talking Heads and all the stuff that was happening then. Um, the Smiths. Um, yeah, I, I'm just saying random things now. I don't, I don't, have, a, I don't have a good checklist to go through. <laughs> well, you know, given the the, the fact that that um, you're sort of imprinted as a teenager yeah. with a certain style of music that you can't ever unimprint yourself from, do you, does your appreciation of that music evolve? Do you think over the years, does it become more intellectual? Does it? Oh, interesting. I thought I was hearing another question, which I'll answer too. Yeah, do. Please, <laughs> but I, answer, but I please answer the question I didn't ask. It's probably more interesting than mine. Well, I mean, I think Neil Young is a really good test case for me. And I always, so there are two classes where I do a lot of music here. And one is the freshman seminar, which is, I've always done it on some kind of musical topic. And then there's this advanced writing class that's about music. And I always joke that it's like, you know, part of what we're trying to figure out how to do here is 
be not just fans, but critics. And it's not that you can't be a fan and critic of the same band, but they're different muscles. But you're not allowed to criticize Neil Young. That's just, that's just all. I <laughs> can't. It's on the syllabus. <laughs> I can. And he's got some terrible, not just songs, albums, uh, lines. I mean, I'm allowed to say that you're not because he's mine. <laughs> okay. He's not yours. Um, but, I, but I do think, I mean, I don't know how common this is for, for people maturing to a certain age or something like that. But to go back and, and to think about why a song might have gotten under skin or, or to hear things in it that you weren't able to hear earlier because you have more context. You can, um, you hear references, you hear echoes of other, other music or hear it being echoed in, in subsequent music. And there's a lot of texture to recover that I don't think that was mostly what I was doing um, when I was in high school. I mean, I think the thing that I that I heard you asking is, I mean, I think part of what's really exciting too, and it's I think completely unpredictable, but to encounter again or think again about a band that had been off limits because of sort of peer pressure things in high school, and realize, oh my gosh, that was so ridiculous. Um, I this is hard to explain, but my crowd did not have much respect for the Beatles which seems crazy. Like, how were you allowed to do that? But it's like, oh, the Beatles, you know. And just going back, which is just too obvious to say out loud, but like going back as an adult and listening, or like Ringo, people make fun of Ringo. Ringo can't drum. It's like, oh, Ringo can drum. You should, you should actually listen to him. He's drumming. It's, um, so some things like that are, are fun to realize how wrong you are and, and to realize how, how powerful those social scripts are, at least in that particular, you know, in the, the bell jar of, of junior high and high school school, that pressurized vessel, um, crazy ideas lodge, and you might not recognize them for 20 or 30 years. As you've mentioned the connections growing up that uh, that music brought to to your your group to you to the group of friends you have is that what you focused on rock now for your studies is is that why it's so influential it was so influential in your life and and you can see what is done for others as well. I think so. I mean, I do think um, there's a phrase that people use. People people talk about a, a branch of music writers or writing. Um, they'll talk about like pop positive or poptivist or something mm -hmm. like that. I think I grew up um, being a real snob about music, right? And so again, it's easier to like Emerson, Lake, and Palmer because they studied classical music and they wrote <laughs> symphonies and they right. did Mussorgsky. Um, and now that just seems laughable to me, but it was powerful. And, and I think, you know, almost as part of the penance, it's like, I think that there's a book that I always teach in the music writing class. Um, in the 33 and the third series, there's a book about Celine Dion uh, by Carl Wilson, who's a great Toronto-based music writer. And Carl essentially writes about, uh, I think it's called Let's Talk About Love, the, the album that has the Titanic theme song on it. Mm -hmm. He writes about it because he hates it so much, and he's trying to figure out why he hates it so much. And a lot of it has to do with snobbery. And a lot of it has to do with him being Canadian and her being Canadian and being sort of embarrassed of the <laughs> sort of um, schmaltzy mm -hmm. character of, mm -hmm. of he, he thinks. It makes him embarrassed to be a Canadian, various things. But it's a really great, clear-eyed, honest um, we always do it first in the music writing class because it's like this is the difference between criticism and taste. And this is somebody who actually by the end of the book gains a kind of respect for mm. he he he's never going to put on that album again, I'm sure. But I think by the end of it, he understands why it means so much to the millions of people 
for whom it means a lot. You know, and I think even if on aesthetic grounds, you're not going to sort of put it on your iPod or something, mm -hmm. that's something important to learn too. Things that are, that are huge like that have something to tell us. Uh, and music um, moves people like most other media don't. So, right. You mentioned a while ago the, the, the um, impact of peer pressure on um, musical tastes and and how you perceive things. Um, can you expand on that a little bit, the just sort of music as a socializing tool? And we, we've spoken about that before, and you, you said it's not always a good thing. Yeah, I mean, one thing in, in the music writing class, uh, having done it a few times, I have a list of like um, rules that we go over the first day in class too, and one of them is no eye-rolling. You know, that if somebody, <laughs> if somebody talks about. <clears throat> should be a rule in every class. It should. Yeah, it should. It should. And there are probably different versions of it. It should classes. be a rule everywhere. In life, yes. <laughs> right. But it's, it's a way, I think, again, to signal like my taste is more exquisite than that. I would never talk so about. So no snobbery. Right. I would never talk about Coldplay except in withering tones, right? Um, and for somebody, it might be important to. We just uh, lost be, a lot of listeners right there. No, I'm, I'm saying that's a terrible Yeah. So that kind of snark, it's, it's. Self-protective, it's defensive. It it does a kind of work in junior high and high school that I think it's time to put it aside. And again, it's it's what we we're just talking about. It's like why? What is it about Coldplay that's so resonant for so many people? Um, and why did Chris Martin think it was a good idea to be on the on the you know the football field with Beyonce and Bruno Mars at the same time? How was he going to come out well in, <laughs> in that face-off? Okay, I'm not the only one. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. That combination didn't quite work, but that's that. That'll be another episode of the podcast. It's fun to rewatch. Yeah. <laughs> um, you, you mentioned before um, the the study of irony and in, in literature and mm. music, and and that being one of the things that you're more interested about. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that, and and how is it expressed in both? Yeah, that's a. That's a big, deep question. I think that um, because, you know, at, at a very minimal level, mm -hmm. music uses um, sonic and lyrical kinds of resources, there's an obvious um, way that those can clash. I think that, that irony in music can be more obvious sometimes than, than irony in literature, because literature is using words and words um, to, to sort of betray two different viewpoints. And sometimes it's a little bit tricky to to um, disarticulate them from each other. The, the fast example that I always use is um, the Smith song, Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now. Um, and Mor Morrissey has a certain reputation. People who know him know what he's like, miserable Morrissey. Um, but so he's singing, um, uh, I, was, uh, I was looking for a job and then I found a job and Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now. And he was like, uh, uh, uh that kind of whiny Morrissey thing that he does. But Johnny Marr on the guitar in the background is just this incredible, he's like, it's almost like he's working against Morrissey uh -huh. or making fun of Morrissey. <laughs> right, right. Um, it's fantastic. And, and I mean, if you just, uh, here again, like if you just printed the lyrics to Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now as poetry, it, that is not what that. that song sounds mm -hmm. like. Mm -hmm. um, because there's this whole <laughs> counter voice going on mm -hmm. in the music. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's always interesting to me. I've been thinking a lot about um, 
the song, um, uh, there was a big reissue, or not a reissue, but all of the, the outtakes of uh, the Blood on the Tracks sessions came out around Thanksgiving. Called, it's got a great title, More Blood, More Tracks. Um, <laughs> and and it, just in listening to all of those different versions of thong, songs, I've been thinking about the song called You're Gonna Make Me Lonesome When I Go. And it's, a, it's such a... It's a real mess of a song, just emotionally, uh, various things. I mean, he's, he, he's saying to someone with whom he, he's still married to his wife. He is starting an affair with a Columbia record executive. And he's saying to her, as they're starting to go out, you're going to make me lonesome when you go, which is so weird. <laughs> like, but, but again, the music there is like that. It's not mournful music. It's <laughs> like this bright, lilting kind of music. Uh-huh. Oh, it's so confusing. <laughs> anyway, I, I love that. I love that mm -hmm. and the kind of work that can get done when the, the different um, threads of a song are working uh, in contradistinction to one another. Um, yeah. You know, I think we all uh, look at our parents and their inability to appreciate the really good music <laughs> that we listen to and and think we'll never be like that, you know. Right. <laughs> um, and then we have children. Do you find yourself still engaged with new music, or and, and I, I, I confess, I'm one who has mm -hmm. been passed by so long that the things I never learned have already been forgotten. <laughs> but where are you in that? Yeah, I'm not listening as, to as much new music as I was 10 years ago, I would say. I mean, part of what's happened is I have a lot of friends now who are pop music writers. And I, um, like Carl Wilson, I, I mentioned, or, or John Perillis, or um, Amanda Petrosich, who writes for The New Yorker. Um, and, and I'm pretty good about keeping up with my, my friends writing. And it's almost like the time that I would have spent listening to new records, I now spend listening to my friends writing about new records. Um, which is a lame excuse. Um, so no, I, I, going back to that earlier conversation, I think, you know, my sweet spot, I mean, I think that, that I'm comfortable with a canon that goes from kind of uh, late 40s, early 50s to around, I don't know, 2005, 2010. And I, and I won't say that rock is dead and that's why I'm not listening anymore. I think just... Uh, I, part of it is I'm writing about, uh, about some of the older stuff and sp I'm spending more time re-listening than listening to new things. Not because they're not worth it. <laughs> Still in the musical thread, but more personal. Do you sing or play an instrument? Uh, neither. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, um, I took keyboard lessons from the man who taught... Um, uh, Lori Partridge uh -huh. in the Partridge family. She lived in my oh, neighborhood, so okay. he would come to my house and then go to her house. So I can I can pick things out. I have a I have a little keyboard in my office just because it's useful sometimes to figure out what's going on in a piece and sort of I mean I can finger it out and and write it just for my own sake. But I wouldn't play for anybody. If I could be a whiz, I would be um, I would be like Sunhouse, like a harmonica wizard. That uh -huh. would be my my dream. I carry one around all the time, but I don't take it uh -huh. very often. So at the end, we'll have a yeah, exactly. harmonica <laughs> piece for you. So let's move to the other side of your split academic <clears throat> personality. <laughs> other side. Of right. Okay. Uh, you've also written uh, and edited books about James Joyce and modernism, um, British and Irish modernism. Yeah. Um, 
When did you first discover Joyce? And do you remember what your initial reaction was? Um, I discovered Joyce in high school, not not in a class. I, I bought, um, back when there used to be B. Dalton booksellers, we were going into B. Dalton and buying Ulysses because um, I had somehow picked up that that was something that smart people read. It was that. It was more complicated than that. And my family, um, my f my father's family is uh, his his uh, grandparents were German immigrants, and he grew up uh, during World War II. And um, the, I think the German part of our family genealogy wasn't much celebrated. Um, but my mother was off the boat. Irish came over in 1955, and um, and so I think in in trying to figure out who I was and figuring out my family, I thought of myself as being Irish. And my name's Kevin, um, so I thought about and identified with that Irish side. And so here's like a difficult book, and it's written by this Irish guy, and so I should read it. Um, so I did. I don't. I don't think I took a lot away from that first reading. Um, I didn't, I didn't have any background. I hadn't read any other Joyce. Um, I didn't have anybody to talk with about it. I remember being deeply um, moved by it and, and impressed. I mean, I think this probably sounds kind of stupid, but I think it's impossible. It's possible to encounter a work of art and feel like I didn't understand that, but I know that something important is happening there. And I want to, I want to spend more time with that. And that was kind of the sense. And when I went off to college, I was able to spend more time with some people who could help me get a toehold. So do you still read Joyce for enjoyment or how do you still interact with Joyce's work and, and how do you do with your, yeah. with your classes when you teach Joyce? I teach them so often. I mean, there are only, you know, there are really four books, um, which is a slight oversimplification, but there isn't that much joy. So it's like, oh, I'm going to read something I haven't read lately. It's, it's all kind of right there. <laughs> um, and I teach three of them in the three in a bit. Uh, Finnegan's Wake, I'm not, a, I'm not a big Finnegan's Wake booster. So in the Joyce survey class, we teach, um, it, it took so long to write that he published some sections as self-standing kind of, um, I don't even know what you call them, installments. Mm -hmm. uh, and I teach a couple of those. Because it seems justified to to excerpt them since they were excerpts to start with, um, just to give students a flavor for what that writing is like and what that project is like. But I, I think more than well, not more than reading. It makes it sound like I don't know the book, but I think Ulysses is really a book that I think with an awful lot. My wife would probably groan and say, like, so often when I'm thinking about something or I'm trying to figure something out, I just like reach for examples from Ulysses all the time. I just, um, which also means I think that that I'm reprocessing the book through mm -hmm. um, new experiences or new conundrums or things like that. I think that um, because it's so um, detail-oriented and, and I you know, have read it dozens of times and taught it dozens of times, that all of that texture is very available um, as, yeah, as, as something to think with. Yeah. You said there are just the four books, but there's quite a range in those four books from mm. the Blinners to Figgins Wake. How would you describe the arc of his writing career? Well, the, th the first thing that he ever wrote, I think, of a, of a fictional nature, um, he wrote an essay that was about 2,000 words long called A Portrait of the Artist. And uh, 
he sent it to a uh, magazine editor who rejected it, but that became the seed of the, the first novel that he wrote, A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. That book just had such a long... So if, that was 1904. The book's published in 1916. It was rejected by a lot of publishers. He, at one point, threw it in the fire, and his sister rescued most of the manuscript. <laughs> it had been much, much, much longer, and he undertook at some point a revision that cut it back very ruthlessly. Um, so I think, um, I don't know, I've, I've had this, I don't mean to compare my writing to Joyce's, but I've had the experience in my own writing where something that's sort of been around for a while, that it's, it, it's, uh, it's only as strong as the oldest piece of it. Like, and I feel like portrait doesn't, gets to some amazing places and does some amazing work, but it's also crystallized, crystallized around this, um, this notion that a 22-year-old had and that, that there is a kind of limitation there. I think um, the, the protagonist, Stephen Daedalus, is, is um, what? He's kind of puerile sometimes. And by the time he finishes the book, at least, Joyce knows that he is too and sort of distance, distances himself from Stephen in some ways. But it's still a book that's entirely about, just relentlessly about this one guy who's just not very likable. <laughs> um, so there's that. I mean, the Dubliner mm -hmm. stories are, are sort of going on at the same time. I think he starts writing them about 1906, and they get published in 1914, so they actually get published earlier. But I think they, they get started later. And to me, there's, there's a more sophisticated sort of um, understanding of life um, in some of those stories, especially The Dead, the last story. Uh, just because of the strange sort of timelines that they were written on, I guess. Yeah, and then Ulysses from nineteen twenty, uh, from nineteen fourteen to nineteen twenty-two, he's working on that. Um, we're told that the first, the first scene in Ulysses, the first chapter that opens in this tower uh, on on the coast near Dunleary, that that was actually meant to be in portrait. But because of the periodical publishing deadlines, Joyce couldn't get it fitched in time, so he just kind of held it back. Um, <laughs> which is one of those weird counterfactuals, like, wow, what would what would it mean for portrait to end there and not with those diary passages? Mm -hmm. Welcome, O life. You know, it's hard to imagine not ending that way, or Ulysses not starting in the tower. Uh, but apparently that was at least conceivable for a moment. Um, yeah, and then Finnegan's Wake, the last seven, 16, 17 years of his life. Um, he, he said about Finnegan's Wake that he had spent a, a book that was, you know, about an entire day and now he was going to write a night book that was more using kind of the associative structure and language of, of, of dream, um, I, which may or may not be true. I, I, I don't find it a, um, rewarding. Yeah. What, what is it that you find less rewarding about? I mean, it's very, it's incredibly dense. It's, it's, it's like, a, you know, a huge tome of poetry. Yeah. I, I mean, this sounds like a very lowbrow kind of criticism, but it seems just terminally self-indulgent to me. Um, Ulysses mm -hmm. quibble about whether there are actually 18 different styles for the 18 chapters. Joyce said there were, I don't think there are really 18 distinct chapters, but styles, but, but there's certainly at least, you know, a dozen, 15 distinct styles as the book moves along. So that each chapter you're kind of in some ways starting over again, um, and trying to account for and compensate for what's happening that the lens keeps shifting and you're sort of adjusting it. I feel like, whereas Finnegan's Wake makes a huge 
I mean, it's a very, very distorting lens, but it's there from the first page and it's in place for 626, which is not to say there's no stylistic or local differences between places in Finnegan's Wake. I think there are, but um, to me, there's just, it's nothing resists it. There's no, there's no friction between that language and anything else. It's just set off and doing its own thing. I, I, I think it's, well, it's not... I think it, you can admire it. Maybe it's like Dylan. <laughs> I can admire it without it being a go-to um, for me. Yeah. You said earlier that um, you find yourself going back to Ulysses for for uses for examples. Mm. What it? What does it make it such an important book? So influential. <sighs> this this could sound um, diminishing or demeaning, and I don't mean it that way. But it was always already famous. I mean, there's a promotional apparatus around Ulysses. Mm -hmm. I, d I don't think we've ever seen it before. I, we, we had never seen it before. I'm not sure that we've ever seen it since. Mm -hmm. So that Joyce had very powerful um, mentors and allies and sponsors. And uh, it was sort of predetermined that, that Ulysses was going to be maybe the, the greatest novel of the 20th century. In, in 19... He was published in 1922 outside of Paris and was prohibited from coming into the United States until there was a there was a court case in 1933 that overturned um, the censorship and, and, and Random House then bought the rights and brought out the first American publication in uh, February of 1934. And in June of 1934, Vanity Fair has a two page spread um, uh, called The People's Joyce. And it's a parody, basically, of Joyce criticism, hmm. um, and and it's. I think the subtitle is including six things to say at a cocktail party about Ulysses. So it's like how to enjoy Joyce's Ulysses even though you haven't read it. Mm -hmm. And this is four months after the book is legally available for purchase. So to me, that's just fascinating, and yeah. it doesn't obviate the value of the book. I mean, it seems like it sits alongside it. But I think if we want to talk, you know, when the Random House did their top hundred novels of the twentieth century, it was number one. It's like, of course it was. <laughs> and I think, and maybe. Maybe even without the promotional apparatus, we would think that, but we'll never know. Um, that was always there. We'll never know. Yeah, again, with Random House, they wanted, Joyce did this sort of secret decoder chart for Stuart Gilbert, who was, I mean, the first book about Ulysses um, was, what, written in 34? Um, so really early on, too. Um, and Joyce sent him a chart sort of laying out the parallels to the Odyssey, such as they are. Uh, and Bennett Cerf, the, the publisher at uh, Random House, wanted to include it in the book. Hmm. And Joyce freaked out, like, <laughs> no, 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 you can't include it in the book. Well, they made this big poster of it then that they would display in bookstores and they'd have copies of Ulysses. And you could, on the inside of the dust flap, there was a coupon that you could mail in and get a copy of that <laughs> chart. Um, so, yeah, the, it, it was it was not going to fail. I think the other thing that Joyce realized um, was that he was really excited. Again, I think it was about 1934 or so that I.A. Richards at Cambridge um, includes Ulysses on his modern literature syllabus. Uh, and then, I mean, students couldn't buy the book. There were copies at the library that you could sit in the library and use for class. So you couldn't take it out of the library because wow. it was so smutty. Um, and Joyce recognized, you know, he, he joked that, you know, I put enough puzzles in it to keep the professors busy for 200 years, which is tongue in cheek. But I think he did realize that one way to immortality is to become part of the university curriculum. 
kind of knew that. So, so playing up the difficulty and playing up the, like, don't try this at home, you know, you uh-huh. need to be in a safe environment uh-huh. with, a, with a tutor, um, <laughs> that that that's helped in the book's longevity. <laughs> in a, way. I mean, a lot of our, well, since this is a Pomona podcast, a lot of our listeners have probably read uh, Ulysses, but I'm sure there's some out there who, who have found it too daunting. Um, do you have any advice because this may, yeah. I mean, maybe after this, some, some people want to grab the book and finally give it a try. Um, you have some advice on how they should go about reading it. Part, yeah, part, part of part of what made it famous made it daunting, too, I think. I mean, it was famous for being daunting or um, certainly. So one of the early criticisms that comes in is um, is that this book is incoherent. It's it's completely chaotic. Uh, and the, the review that uses that language ties that chaos to like the, the Russian Revolution, like bad chaos, right? Um, this is, yeah, uh, is sort of anarchy. And, uh, and so part of the, the pushback comes, so T.S. Eliot, the poet T.S. Eliot, wrote a review called Ulysses, Order, and Myth that was published in 1924, I want to say. It was a review. It took a while to come out, but it was a review of the book. But part of what Eliot's doing is saying like, you think it's chaotic? Oh, it's not chaotic. It's really carefully structured, right? And he sort of lays out, he, he doesn't in detail lay out the Homeric parallels, but he says, there's this airtight structure there, if you're just smart enough to see it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that the, there's this defensive way in which Joyce's critics start to play up how complicated and how erudite and how elusive the book is as a way to make it seem like a serious project and worth anybody's time. But then that gets in the way. So there's this notion that Ulysses is sort of too difficult for a common reader or... And you need the um, compendium before you can read it with all right, the footnotes. And the- right. Ulysses annotated. The, hand, you know, the, the companion is bigger than Ulysses. And it's really useful. I mean, it's, a, it's an incredible reference work, resource um, work to have if you're trying to figure out something specific that's going on. But, but I almost imagine it as like getting in between your face and Ulysses. There's this like all of this criticism or all of these um, footnotes that, that you need to understand before you can. Joyce's readers, I mean, Ezra Pound might be the exception. He seemed to have read everything. But Joyce's readers in 1922 didn't know all the illusions either. I think part of the, the way that the book works is by putting you in this pleasantly confused place where you're trying to find your bearings and trying to, um, yeah, trying to, trying to sort out the, the important from the unimportant detail because it, it's so detail rich and they're not all important. As a professor of literature, how do you distinguish reading for pleasure and reading for analysis or are they, are they related and <laughs> interwoven? I think they're the same thing. Um, It's like listening for pleasure or listening for analysis. I think um, it does tend to be the case these days that if I'm reading something, it's either because I think I might write about it or I think I might teach it. Um, unless it's summer and that, that's sort of, but even then it's like, oh, this is interesting. I wonder if I could teach this or, you know, if I could work it into this course or I could work this into this argument that I'm making about something else. It's all, it's all grist for the mill. I don't know. I, I think there is that, um, that dichotomy in the popular culture and we, we have a bad reputation and it's, and it's deserved. I think we're like, we're the people who sit and you watch movies with them and we're, us and we're annoying because we keep <laughs> wanting to. Analyze everything. Right. Analyze everything. But to me, that's that's what's fun. Um, 
that yeah, I, I don't enjoy a kind of a passive reading experience. I've never been somebody who um, gets lost in books. Mm-hmm. Like I can, uh, my wife does, I can recognize that's a genuine thing that it happens with intelligent people, but I never get lost in a book. I'm always really conscious of the fact that I'm reading um, and thinking about that. I just, I would say I probably love writing even more than I love reading. Mm-hmm. And so reading for me is a kind of, it's part of this sort of ecosystem of writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm always writing little notes in my head or in my book or putting uh, markers down for for later. Joyce is sort of um, a huge figure in British yeah. and Irish modernism. Who else do you study? Who have, well, who have I been writing about? I haven't been writing about anybody else for a while. Part of what I'm, I've been working on for the last five or six years is an edition of. Uh, Joyce's unpublished correspondence, the the total corpus of his letters is uh, just short of 3,700 letters, and only about half of those have been published. Mm-hmm. And the others went into the public domain a few years ago. So with uh, three other editors, we're putting together an online edition of all those unpublished letters. So that's been a lot of work and um, reading and another, another part of Joyce, uh, which doesn't doesn't make me like him more, I have to say. He's, I would say, so there's another similarity with Dylan. Like as much as I admire what Dylan has done, I don't want to meet Dylan. I don't, I don't, he wouldn't like me and I wouldn't like him. You don't you think know? you'd want to meet Joyce? No, no, I don't. In part because I'd just be terrified. But in part, he was really, um, I don't know, I'm, I'm suspicious of the, the term of the category of genius, I guess, but for incredibly dedicated and gifted artists, I think that everything, everything is fodder and everything is sacrificed to that, including being civil to other people or give anything like give and take. Just no. I mean, the Joyce letters is like take and take and take and take. Um, <laughs> and at least he didn't waste it. You know, he, he made magnificent things with it. I, I, I get that. Um, you know, Dylan's got a, a a, a litter of broken and unhappy relationships. I, I, I just think that they, um, everything is dedicated to that one thing and it makes them not great, well-rounded people probably. Okay. Good. Um, well, there's a third part to your CV now. Um, so, uh, <laughs> a third split. So what's that? Uh, <laughs> uh, director of the, oh. Pomona College Humanities yeah. Studio. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's been so much fun. Um, I came to Pomona in 2008 and um, after a couple of years started to think a little bit about mm, the, the status of, of the study of humanities here. Uh, it, it was, I came the year that the, I, it wasn't my fault, but I came the year that the stock market crashed, uh, the housing bubble burst. And and so um, student enrollment patterns across the country started to reflect that. We seemed to have more students going into things that were perceived as uh, fast track to jobs, um, more pragmatic things, econ, computer science, and fewer students going to humanities disciplines. The, the faculty were um, feeling a little bit beleaguered, I think. And I, and I just wondered what it would how we might shine a light on the good work that happens in the humanities here and kind of um, celebrate it and foster it. And um, 
So uh, with, the, with the help of a previous dean, um, we came up with a plan for a, a small humanities center where students and faculty could work together and we could do some programming and try to support really rich humanities work. And, uh, and what, last June, we got a nice grant from uh, the Mellon Foundation to get it started with um, President Starr's support. So we have a space and uh, we have a year-long seminar, a, a mixed faculty-student seminar, six students and six seniors who are writing senior theses, theses on uh, humanities topics. We have a topic, an annual theme every year. This year it's uh, Fail Better, a phrase from Samuel Beckett. Next year it's Post-Truth, which will be interesting. Um, so we do that seminar, we bring in uh, visiting speakers on, on the topic, we do some other programming, um, we're calling it the Humanities Toolkit, but a series of small events and workshops meant to sort of equip people to be humanists out in the public sphere. So things like how to, how to work with a, a, a publisher or how to write for a, a general interest magazine or Bill Keller, uh, alum of the college, was here to do a workshop on how to write an op-ed piece and how to pitch it to a to an editor. And then we're also just sort of trying to partner with faculty and, and departments when they have interesting ideas that need a partner. So uh, it's, yeah, it's been great so far. So um, we're going to have to wrap this up. Uh, we have one more question, which I said I would ask you, Ooh. and I'm going to yeah. in music, and then we'll have one more in, in the literary side so we can sort of wrap up both. Yeah. Um, okay. So you knew this was coming. <laughs> so <laughs> that's time to think about it. it. I know. You shouldn't, you shouldn't have trouble coming up with these. Um, uh, we're sending you to a desert island. <laughs> you can only take three. Let's just, oh, let's three. keep it simple. Oh, three wow. albums. Um, what are they and why? Oh, I'm tempted to cheat and do big compilation things. <laughs> <laughs> Not those, compilations. Those great Motown box sets, hit, Hitsville, USA. Um, no, that's against three, the Three, like, 45-minute LPs. Yeah. Oh, gosh. I think Another Green World would probably be one, the Brian Eno album. And In Rainbows, the Radiohead album. And then I've got to find something a little softer. What would that be? Um, oh, where do I want to go? Well, probably the, the Gang of Four album that I wrote about. Not softer, very much harder than those two. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the Gang of Four album called Entertainment. Just uh, writing about that was a big, uh, a big thrill. So. so walk us through those three. Why, why those three? Um, I don't know why in Rainbows. Is, I mean, I feel like Radiohead is, my topic is always going to be a Radiohead record, and it, which one it is varies from, from time to time. Um, I think that that Radiohead, from my point of view, had sort of lost their way prior to In Rainbows, and it's a, a little bit of a return to form. It's sophisticated, but as we were talking about before, it manages to be, um, I think, uh, melodically and instrumentally very sophisticated while still having this very fragile um, kind of uh, affect at the center of it that I find really attractive. Um, another Green World. Again, I mean, there are other Eno albums that... that would um, suggest themselves. I, I, I don't know. He, I, I think it's, I, I haven't checked this. I think it's maybe half instrumentals and half vocals, but he uses his voice really as another instrument. He thinks about his voice as kind of an instrument in these lush mixes. They're very um, atmospheric and, and um, 
provocative. And, uh, and there's, there's some real tenderness and beauty in that too. I guess that's the through line. I like tender, beautiful things. Um, and then Gang of Four, I mean, I read a whole book about why that album, it was, it was just really pivotal for me in, in college, seeing them play, um, in a, in a small coffee house at UC Davis and, uh, just feeling like I'd, I'd never seen anything quite that intense and frightening and challenging and serious, um, yeah, I, I just um, I could sort of just put it on repeat. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of things you find beautiful, would you mm. mind reading us a few passages of Ulysses that that would be some of your favorites? Uh, sure. I I uh, let's see. Well, there's there's one s sort of a section in the um, Cyclops episodes. It's a the twelfth chapter, and. Um, Leopold Bloom has gone into a pub and there's somebody who's sort of holding forth there who's a drunk Irish nationalist who's also an anti-Semite. Bloom is a Jew. So it's a pretty hostile place for him to be in. Um, and I'm going to stitch three little sections together because there's a lot of narration that breaks them up. But Bloom is um, uh, starting to mount a defense of himself um, in this hostile space. And he says, persecution, says he. All the history of the world is full of it, perpetuating national hatred among nations. But do you know what a nation means, says John Wise? Yes, says Bloom. What is it, says John Wise? A nation, says Bloom. A nation is the same people living in the same place. <laughs> By God then, says Ned, laughing, if that's so, I'm a nation, for I'm living in the same place for the past five years. <laughs> So, of course, everyone had to laugh at Bloom and says he trying to muck out of it. We're also living in different places. That covers my case, says Joe. What is your nation, if I may ask, says the citizen. Ireland, says Bloom. I was born here, Ireland. And he picks up on the next page. But it's no use, says he. Force, hatred, history, all that. That's not life for men and women. Insult and hatred. And everybody knows it's the very opposite of that that is really life. What, says Alf? Love, says Bloom. I mean the opposite of hatred. I must go now. The narrator goes on to make relentless fun of Bloom for this sort of simple-minded like love. But I, I love that moment because I think it's not, art, it's not artful, but it's true. I mean, it's sort of true to... Um, at the end of Portrait, uh, Stephen's mother, who Stephen's disdainful of, he's packing up to leave. He's going off to Paris. And she says, I hope that you'll find out in the real world what the heart is and what it feels. And it's like, this, this book knows what the heart is and what it feels, even amidst all the pyrotechnics. Right. So. Yeah. Well, on that note, we'll bring this to a close. Um, we've been talking with Professor of English Kevin Detmar about music and literature. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you so much. And to all who stuck with us this long, thank you for listening. This is SageCast from One College's podcast. All right. Can we be done? <laughs>